0: The world as we know it has fundamentally changed. What was once considered the future of work is here now. We are operating in an all-digital, work-from-anywhere world. More and more consumers are supporting brands that align with their personal values. It's the values-driven firms that will rebound sooner and grow faster in this new world. Salesforce has partnered with Singapore Community Radio to bring you this podcast. We want to explore the opportunities and the challenges of this new world. We want to talk about the ways in which we will work going forward, how businesses can be a platform for change, and how technology will continue to impact the world. We have some amazing thought leaders, executives, and community advocates joining us, and we hope it sparks some inspiration and innovation for you. To learn more about us, you can head to our blog at salesforce.com
1: AP Blog. Hi, I'm Asha Perpetla, and we are now into Episode 5 of Business as a Platform for Change. Joining me today is a very interesting individual, Dr. Sidi Ariel. He's the Regional Director of Vital Strategies, a global public health company based here in Singapore. And I am truly excited to speak to him today. Welcome to the show. Can I call you Siddi?
2: Yes, please do, Asa. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here as your guest.
1: Sidi, now I read uh, uh, a lot of things and some of the best ideas I realized come from starting over a drink in a dusty cafe. You know, you sit down, you're having a coffee or you're having a beer and then you think, oh, it'd be really great if we did something like this. And I understand this is exactly how Vital Strategy started. Can you tell me more about it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you are, you know, correct. In 2003, our CEO Jose Luis Castro was in New Delhi, and uh, he was in a dusty cafe, and he was meeting with several like-minded individuals. And then they were talking about how to solve some of the intractable public health problems uh, in terms of, you know, supplying the medicines uh, at scale and working with the governments and sharing good practice examples and so on and so forth. So from 2003, when that meeting happened until 2016 when Vital Singapore was incorporated and Vital was incorporated in the US uh, by a merger of the Union North America with the World Lung Foundation. Um, The dream actually uh, came live in terms of implementing programs at scale.
1: So from that drink that you had in a little cafe to now, what exactly is it that Vital Strategies does as a public health company? I understand use technology and data to bring it all together.
2: So Asha, you know, we envision a world where everyone is protected by a strong public health system. And so when you're working, so I myself am trained as a health systems, you know, expert. Um, so what we do is we work in different disease areas where we can make the most impact. So maybe I can give you a little bit of a background in terms of the different areas where we work in, not only geographic, but also in terms of the disease areas. In Asia Pacific region, we are working with uh, governments in Bangladesh, in uh, sri lanka in india in also malaysia indonesia pakistan you know most of the countries in asia pacific and south asia and we work in cardiovascular health we work in air quality we work in strengthening disease surveillance. We work also in terms of strengthening vital statistics, uh, birth registration, death registration, and the like. And we also work with some of the bigger you know, cities in the world to share examples from the you know, uh, good practice uh, examples implemented by one city with another city so that we can solve some of these issues in partnership with the government. So our model has always been working with the government mm-hmm. um, at scale. And in partnership with implementing entities like on the ground. So that's where we are.
1: What do you get out of
2: this? You know, uh, maybe I can share with you a personal story. So I wasn't always a public health you know, person. In my previous life, I used to work with Solomon Smith Barney, which is a... Uh, institutional equities firm. Uh, I was in Chicago. I was uh, doing trades, uh, institutional equities. And so a part of me was always unhappy, unsettled. Like, what am I doing with my life? And so I'm. I was in the search for doing something meaningful. And so you know, I also wanted to do something where I can show results or I can see results for myself in terms of what I have done. Uh, at that time, you know, my native Nepal was suffering from uh, Maoist insurgency. And there were you know bombings happening and lots of uh, insecurity and a general state of malaise in the country. So when I went back to Nepal, um, I reflected on my own sort of you know childhood and adolescence growing up, where in our societies, it's very difficult for adolescents and young people to communicate frankly with their parents, with society in general. Uh, during the Maoist insurgency, you know, people were being abducted, made to kind of forced, forcefully join their, you know, fighting sides. Uh, people had still problems about pimples in their faces, you know, how to get rid of them, uh, failing the school leaving certificate exam. So myriads of issues young people had. And so I partnered with UNICEF at that time, UNICEF Nepal, in setting up this amazing radio program called Chatting with My Best Friends, uh, which became hugely popular. And so that was my first foray into public health, uh, even in a setting like Nepal, where services were quite sparse and uh, connecting people, young people, one with the other was really difficult. We distributed radios, we formed uh, listeners groups, we mailed them photo novellas. So this whole experience was so amazing for me that uh, even though I was trained in a different discipline prior to that, um, I wanted to study public health more so. And so hence my journey, a meaningful sort of life journey in public health began at that point. That was like 2005, 2006.
1: But that's a great story. But, you know, it. I think people are trying to understand how public health works. So Because when they think public health, they think government. They don't think about external public health agencies. They mostly think about the UN. So when it comes to, I mean, your website says Vital Strategies Helps Governments Strengthen Their Public Health Systems To Contend With The Most Important And Difficult Health Challenges. Now, perhaps one of the most important challenges right now That the world is facing is beating COVID-19. So if you can tell me more about the work that you're doing here you know in the region globally to fight uh diseases like this how how do companies like yours come into the bigger picture
2: sure so let me explain to you a little bit about the health architecture right global health architecture so within the global health architecture we try to talk of it as a building blocks of health so you have the health systems workforce you have technologies involved in health you have health communication you also have health systems financing you have you know service delivery components of it and you also have communicating with the communities, uh, both at the policymaking level, also at the grassroots level. So vital strategies, uh, we find ourselves in different sort of, you know, areas within that uh, building blocks of health system. So on the policy side, we find ourselves right now advising governments uh, in terms of setting up their digital dashboard, saying that, look, you might want to look into this area because that's where we might find fatalities related to COVID, for example, or here are some of the interesting things that you might want to consider in your dashboard. At the, you know, community side, we might find ourselves with actually we are doing in a city like Phnom Penh, which is, you know, struggling to open up the schools. We are talking with the governor of that particular city and saying that, can we help you design a program so that young children in your city can go back to school within, you know, safe, uh, employing safe measures of the three Ws, right? So wash your hands, watch where you're going, as well as, uh, you know, wearing masks. So I think in terms of the general preparedness for cities at scale as well, we are also looking at contingency planning for uh, what happens when the vaccines are finally in our midst, you know? So a lot of the countries in our region happen to be resource poor. Uh, they're not, you know, able yet to uh, appropriate resources to get their supplies ascertained. So we are working with them, in partnership, planning for the eventuality of when the vaccines will come. So in summary, monitoring evaluation, looking at surveillance system, enabling communities to work and uh, continue on with their lives, as well as to sort of help governments plan. So that's what we do.
1: So, I mean, things like contact tracing, you help them, things like, uh, you know, uh, I guess like if you have a vaccine, somebody has to produce the glass tubes to put the vaccine in so that it gets delivered. So you would do things like that as well?
2: yes uh, we also provide you know technical advisory for strengthening public health supplies and so within the context of covid maybe i can give you a little bit more specifics about what we are doing globally as well as in the region so in bangladesh we are designing a dashboard we designed help government you know designed a dashboard that looked at admissions and mortality data uh, working with district and government hospitals as well as 14 medical college hospitals in that country in india we provided guidance on on the analysis of data for COVID surveillance, for example, that was at the national level. In the Philippines, we responded to specific uh, technical advisory needs of the type that you are talking about. And in Sri Lanka, we you know, had a COVID response supplies dashboard generated for the government with the epidemiological data, as well as the availability of uh, stuff like the PPE, for example. But broadly and globally, we are working to strengthen surveillance across the countries where we are working in. Uh, we are designing rapid mortality surveillance toolkits and distributing it to the government so that it's very difficult right now you know this is an era where people are questioning science and the relevance of you know what is the guidance and what are you guys doing so we are producing toolkits and providing this to the different governments across the world so that they can be informed by science
1: and that is the main thing isn't it because in public health uh you want people to be able to follow a certain uh line of thought but there's been so much mixed messaging because people don't understand the disease and it's baffled so many and it's gotten to a point where people actually think well we beat it i mean we have beaten many many diseases in the past but you know i don't think the world has faced a pandemic like this in a very long time
2: that's true asha and i think let's just you know take a step back a little bit and then see you know how we got here right uh, public health in general has been an area which has been ignored. You know, in terms of the overall budget that this area of work received, like pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, for example, like you know, even in some of the most developed countries, it's like one and a half to two percent of their entire health budget went into public health. But we all know prevention is the best cure. So what? COVID-19 has done is really only exacerbated some of the existing, you know, crises that our health systems had uh, to begin with. So for example, if you if you remember the early sort of onset of a COVID epidemic within our own region, even in a, you know, city-state like Singapore, which is extremely economically buoyant and, uh, you know, doing well for itself, the fault lines were detected in areas where maybe the systemic oversight wouldn't, you know, wasn't there. And the same also applied in the case of India, for example. You saw the long lines of migrant workers returning back to their domiciles, not being able to fend for their families, um, no access to food, the same in Nepal. And so if we design public health with uh, more generous funding, in partnership with the local communities, mostly at the local level, that is when we get to reap the benefits of public health, like we have seen in several countries that have done that. And for me as a public health practitioner, I think the most important lesson that I have seen is that the you know, individual is extremely important for sure, because my my human rights, my decision-making, all that is really good, but the compendium of individuals in terms of society is also extremely important. So. That is what I have, you know, stressed to to my colleagues.
1: You, you've been in this business a long time. What have been some of your best moments helping the people in this region?
2: I would say that, uh, you know, when I worked with, uh, backed with USAID funding in, in Bangkok, I was based in Bangkok and we worked in strengthening the coverage of uh, testing for HIV. Um, there was a general sense of, you know, um, just joy when we were able to get community-based HIV testing set up in different parts of Bangkok and that were tailored to the different communities that wanted uh, clinics and test sites that spoke to them and were available to them when they wanted to go and sort of access services. For example, transgendered individuals, you know, uh, sex workers that worked in different parts of the city, and this program was amazingly successful also in the context of HIV programming. I think along with joy. Um, there's also moments of, you know, really sad sort of realities of the world that we live in. And I would cite to you one example of, uh, you know, my participation in a capacity building workshop for people living with HIV in, in my native Nepal. That was in a city called Nepal gun which was uh, in the west of the country. And, uh, you know, we were at a workshop and obviously people were talking about, you know, HIV prevention and safe uh, injections and all of that that. And during lunch hour, one of the individuals was uh, just, you know, crying. And so when I went to him and I said, you know, what's wrong? You know, you can talk to me. Please tell me what's what's bothering you. And he said, you have all this food laid out here. It's a hotel. And uh, I can't Eat this food because my family, you know, they are hungry. They don't have access to this, which lays bare the work that you know we do. So sometimes that's why I stress, like working with the communities at the community level is really important to find out problems and to help identify in the long-term solution. Mm-hmm. So it's it's joyful, but it also kind of exposes to you the the ugly side of uh, the fault lines that we all have in our societies that we live in.
1: What's been the most frustrating bits of the work that you do? I mean, what annoys you what frustrates you when you try and help people in public health
2: i think we are seeing some of that now is that you know even though there is evidence and uh, even though there is this you know uh, knowledge from science that you know stuff works uh, people's insistence are not changing their behaviors right so we call it the you know uh, Knowledge, you can have like smoking, for example. I mean, everybody who picks up a cigarette these days knows that cigarette smoking kills you because of all the carcinogens, all the chemicals. But then getting people to actually change their behavior and not smoke, there is that leap of faith that you have to do. So right now people know that by not wearing masks and by congregating with others and then exposing you know yourself to the other people can actually kill other people, but it's getting them to appreciate the fact and then actually kind of you know wear masks. So you see the same thing repeat all over again in HIV, in, you know, tuberculosis, in other diseases of public health significance as well. That is the most frustrating part of people not following what they need to be doing to kind of, you know, be responsible citizens.
1: You know, blue skies, right? If you could tell the people to, you know, do what they're supposed to do. I mean, what what would be your ideal situation, you know, that people follow?
2: I think a healthy degree of skepticism is all right you know because i think right now we're also i mean you and i are living in an age you know where there is healthy debates about what's a good model to run this world or what's a good model mm-hmm. to you know run this region for example and so the the formula that i get to is that while healthy skepticism about you know following guidance blindly is is good sometimes you have to leave it up to the experts to determine the path forward and say that look if if everybody that we trust and respect and with like, you know, degrees and with experience and exposure of doing these things are saying that we ought to follow the guidance, then let's bite the bullet and let's follow the guidance. I mean, that's how I would approach it.
1: But people don't always believe that, do they? Yeah. Mm,
2: there's also you know anti-vaxxers. There's also people who believe in flat Earth. But you know I think by and large you know so far thankfully uh, people have turned around. And 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 let's not let's not forget it. You know even from the public health side there have been some hiccups, right? I mean uh, there was initially a guidance that you know you don't really need to wear masks, and then we reversed it and said mask is important. I think in terms of uh, risk communication, one of the principles that we follow in public health is that the more consistent you are while communicating about risk, the more people will follow you. And so if you as leads are yourself not certain about how you are communicating, then people will obviously doubt you more. So I think that's a lesson for public health practice in results.
1: In in trying to, you know, uh, put together a public health program to help different people, which you've done over the years for different groups of people. What, what, story sticks up most in your mind what faces stick up most in your mind what is it that you know you know makes you do this business and continue to want to do this to continue to want to make a change
2: I think um, there's two sides to that, right? I think there is the uh, technical side due to, to the question that you're asking, but mm, no, there's let's also not do the that. human side. I wanna right?
1: see the human side. The so yeah.
2: human side. And so I think uh, I, would, I would cite you an example of a malaria prevention program. So when I was working with malaria consortium in the region, greater Mekong sub-region, um, we had you know, migrant workers uh, uh, from you know, um, Cambodia, for example, uh, coming to work in Thailand. Or you know um... migrants from Myanmar uh, coming to work in Thailand, and also from you know one country to the other country. And so some of these people, like they would have been you know infected by malaria for so long, and uh, they wouldn't have access to medicines, and they wouldn't have access to you know anything to, to kind of you know take care of their health, uh, because some of these same people are also people who are stateless. They don't have proper identification papers. They're living and working in areas that are sparsely populated, almost, you know, certainly militarized. And so the health clinics are very sparse. And so the work with the governments at the local level, trying to do contact tracing, trying to make sure that one side of the border speaks to the other side of the border in terms of health clinic and corresponding, you know, tests. And so but, that work is extremely meaningful.
1: Politics gets in the way of... Good public health,
2: uh, doesn't politics, it? Absolutely, Asha, I think we saw it. We, we saw it, you know, when the plane, you know, disappeared, Malaysian Airlines, it disappeared, right, while it was flying. And we know that some of the countries knew they had seen in their radar, the flight disappearing or flight going their way, but they didn't come forth with that information. So when something like that happens at the macro level, when a big plane disappears, can you imagine countries hesitating to share data at the micro level? That might pertain to the number of their army personnel being infected with malaria, or that might pertain to a disease outbreak they have inside their border. So I think we need to unravel some of the intricacies of this and assuage nations that unless we really fend for the whole of humanity, that no one country can stay above another one, as we are seeing with this COVID scourge, is that we need to fend for each other in some totality. And that is the message that I'd like to kind of stress also again.
1: But how do you do that?
2: By opening up, by being more transparent, by making sure that we delineate. But you from can't force
1: people to do things, right?
2: You cannot force people to do things, but we do have frameworks. You know, World Health Organization has the International Health Regulations but, Framework. for But example. not
1: everybody believes in the World Health Organization.
2: I mean, I think you are right. I mean, and I think you are raising these issues uh, because <laughs> these issues have been raised. But I think that's the challenge. I think being pragmatic. One message for me is that we need to reach out to the people who don't believe in the entities like World Health Organization and talk to them in language they understand, in mm-hmm. ways they understand, rather than saying these are naysayers, they will never be on board. Dem- because at the end of the day, you know, they need to be listened to.
1: Dem- give me a story of what you've done in the past. You know, you know, I'm sure that you've had difficulties in the past. You know, we've fight- fought so many diseases, HIV, AIDS. Malaria, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of diseases. Uh, what, what, have you, what sort of problems have you had in the past dealing with one of these diseases and how you overcame it?
2: I'll, I'll give you two examples, maybe. One from injecting drug use uh, prevention of HIV and one also in terms of, uh, you know, sex workers uh, congregating for, for their rights. So, you know, when you are an injecting drug user, you share needles not so much because there is joy in sharing needles, right? So needles are obviously, you know, mediums for you to inject drugs within you. And so when we were working with the home ministry uh, in, in, in Nepal and trying to sort of advocate with them that a needle exchange program is far from encouraging more individuals to come forward and use needles. It's about minimizing harm of, you know, transfer of HIV from one person to another. It took a long time. It took a lot of effort, a lot of sort of, you know, capacity building and the sharing of stories, human stories, and also incident reports to all the public health data, but finally they came around. So that's the story that, that, you know, engaging with them ended in a good result. Another one is that, you know, in the past and even now, like, you know, sex work is something that a lot of the political bureaucratic uh, bureaucratic class in our region um frown upon they look down on even though in our societies it's it's prevalent it's everywhere and so when sex workers were traveling uh, in the course of their work and uh, police personnel during the maoist insurgency would you know um, check their bags and sign up and kind of do a you know spot search and they would find paraphernalia like condoms for example they would be harassed and they would be sent to prison or you know they would be just in in, in general harassed so for us as public health practitioners, the fact that sex workers uh, wouldn't uh, be able to carry condoms with them was a risk. And so we were able to do outreach with the, you know, armed police force and also with the senior personnel in the government who understood and kind of appreciated that that message. Mm-hmm.
0: So,
1: In the past, right, when you've had uh, help with all these uh, various groups, um, what is the one one story that you know that you know you stays with you night after night and if you had to think about it right this is the story that will stick in your mind throughout because this is something that you didn't think you could help that person and you managed to help the person
2: i think uh, in terms of that story i would say that you know um, uh, the setting up of the regional resource center for uh vector borne disease control in bangkok is probably one of the stories that i would you know cite i mean i know it's slightly disconnected from individuals at individual level but when we were talking about you know uh, disease control and you were talking about academic papers that need to be written and researches that need to be done to elucidate and highlight the stories from the ground the fact that we were able to set up a regional resource center that talks about migrant workers that talks about stateless people that talks about people without identification papers crossing borders still not being able to you know, access healthcare when they need to, and I think that, to me, is a personal sort of you know satisfaction of being able to be involved in the group who set that up in you know um, Bangkok at Mahidol University in collaboration with Malaria Consortium.
1: Okay, um, you've said that before that public health is also about lots of things. You know, the schools that our kids go to, the government departments that manage our surroundings, the businesses that bring us goods. How does it all fit together?
2: Maybe I can cite you an example of uh, the environmental health, you know, and to, to, to explain how it sides together. Say, if we want to protect children from harmful chemicals that affect their everyday lives, we have to start thinking about the neonatal states when they're still inside their mother's wombs, right? Because the air that the mother breathes in and the food that she takes and the kind of uh, housing setting that she lives in, we have to, you know, think about it. When the children are toddlers, the chemicals and the kind of exposure they have can give things like, you know, diarrhea directly and kind of their environment, their surrounding also affects them. When they're adolescents, the kind of way that they carry out themselves in terms of having access to green open areas where they can play, they can exercise, where they're encouraged by the school system to not just like, you know, be in computers all day or, you know, just like move. Like that sets the stage for later on in their life when they have cardiovascular disease, um, they have obesity and other problems. So in a microcosm, all these things fit together. And so the challenge is for us to find the different vantage points for us to work with the governments so that they understand the complexities of how one aspect is related to the other aspect.
1: Who inspires you?
2: I think there have been a few people. I think uh, quite honestly I you know got into public health when I read this book uh, called you know Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder this was a 2003 book that talked about the life and times of Dr Paul Farmer and as you know Paul Farmer is one of the luminaries in public health uh, who has done a lot of work with injecting drug users in uh, Russia in Peru as well as in Haiti so when I read about his work in Haiti in the most difficult circumstances and how he was able to overcome his own personal needs and desires for the sake of community. Um, I was really drawn into it. And I think uh, people like him, um, people like, uh, you know, um, for example, ones that work in, you know, gay men's health crisis, for example, to advocate for spaces where uh, people who don't have spaces have found spaces and courage by keeping themselves uh, exposed with others, risking the initial blows. I think those luminaries, they really, you know, help um, bring out the best in me. Okay.
1: And how do you hope to be an inspiration to others and you know, encourage them to get into public health?
2: I think from my side, uh, young people of these days um, are living at times which are extremely promising. I mean, you've twice talked about the role of technologies in, in, in managing some of the public health you know, complexities of our times. When you look at the different ways in which public health interacts with our lives, for young people to get inside the public health field uh, to talk to, you know, communicating with people, uh, communicating with the policymakers, working with communities, designing programs, uh, getting into artificial intelligence, like using the new media. I mean, There's so many ways in which they can make a difference. And I think this is exciting bit that whenever I find opportunities to mentor, uh, you know, young uh, people, I talk to them about how they can make a big difference.
1: Okay, last question. Now this, right now, if for somebody who's in public health, right, this particular disease has baffled so many. Do you think we will beat it?
2: Uh, there is no question about it. Uh, I think uh, with the good news coming from not just one, but, you know, three different vaccine manufacturers, uh, we are definitely on the you know horizon, uh, about to beat it. But the bigger question, Asha, for me is that we beat it this time so what about the next i think the challenge for us is to keep talking about this in a way that we frame you know sustainable solutions and i think if we don't build public health systems from the ground up we are going to find ourselves continually in the same situation over and over again so the basics Uh, We have to work with uh, people on the ground, communicate with them effectively and build the health blocks, health system blocks, so that we can manage uh, as humanity these diseases that will keep coming back to us uh, time and again.
1: Is this uh, something that we can uh, get the governments all to come on board with and do it all together in one voice, you think?
2: That is the hope, and that is what we are seeing. Um, But I think the challenge is to keep this uh, as our sole focus, even after COVID 19 has been beaten. Because, you know, our interaction with nature uh being the way it is and some of the sustainable versus unsustainable practices that we as humanity are dealing with the way we approach our food systems i mean we talk about the you know uh fisheries for example with all the antibiotics in the meat industry for example uh, the the forests that that you know are fast disappearing in our region for example unless we rethink about the way we put food on our table and we kind of you know subject our air to breathe in. It's going to be difficult. Uh, the writing is on the wall. We know what can happen when we don't pay attention. So I think that for public health practitioners, the job is to help governments and the regional entities understand the complexities and to keep trying to kind of work with them. I'm hopeful.
1: So maybe there will be some good that comes out of all this.
2: Absolutely. There is no doubt.
1: Thank you so much, Siddi. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Asha, for your time.
1: Thank you. Yeah.